This podcast is sponsored by Uncana, trusted natural solutions. Uncana is a leading voice of advocacy for CBD in the veteran LEO and federal communities. Veteran-owned and operated, the Uncana team is actively fighting for DOD access to CBD with political pressure, community support, and a simple message. Hashtag OpNatural. Uncana is vertically integrated with industry leaders from seed to sell, supplying premium small batch products to America's best. Use code MENTORS4MIL the number four, M-I-L, at checkout at uncana.com to receive your amazing discount. Read the Mentors for Military disclaimer at mentorsformilitary.com slash disclaimer. Hey guys, Robert here. Appreciate you guys coming and listening to us each and every week. We've got an amazing guest on this episode. I know that you're going to enjoy this show. Um, if you're looking at supporting the show, you can always go out, leave a rating and a review at one of the podcast apps, or you can go out to one of our social media sites, comment on some of the photos or some of the posts that we've made out there so that we know that you enjoy the show. Tell us a little bit about why maybe, and uh, or if you don't like some things, of course, leave your feedback, and that's always helpful as well. You can also become a donor. If you're so inclined to do so, you can support the podcast by going to our Patreon site. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash mentors, the number four, M-I-L. And you can go out there and become a donor or just look at some of those uh, posts out there as well and comment. Another thing I want to mention is, of course, if you're looking to support a veteran-owned business, look no further than our veteranownedus.com website. Uh, we have a bunch of veteran-owned companies that we're trying to help promote within that directory. And if you're a veteran-owned business and you're looking to get uh, supported in that way, you can always join up. But for everyone else that are looking to help support products and services created in good old America by uh, veteran companies, please go out to veteranownedus.com and help support a veteran company. So sit back and relax and get ready to enjoy another episode of Mentors for Military. This is the Mentors for Military podcast. So, Jason, first off, I'm glad that Kevin reached out and, you know, put the two of us together. And if you haven't heard of the uh, the Kevin Flake uh, podcast, go back to episode 170. Really uh, interesting podcast where he shares his story of being on a mission, uh, taking a bullet to his admin and, um, you know, what occurred thereafter. It's a really good episode. So again, episode one seventy. But anyway, Jason, you you know Kevin, I guess, from serving with him. And I know Kevin. Uh, we were both Green Berets. We didn't serve together in, at Tenth Group per se, but we met after our service was over. And I'm just I'm just blown away by Kevin. That, that guy's a rock star, man. He's he's unbelievable. Such an authentic, humble, just a good dude. He's he's a good human being. Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. Well, I want to start off with you because, as I understand it, you grew up um, just outside of Washington, D.C. So take me back to that time frame when, you know, you decided that you were, you know, going either going to go to college or something along that, along that line and how you decided to go to West Point. Yeah, I, I grew up in Washington, D.C., so I'm a, I'm a huge Washington Redskins fan. So I know a thing or two about dysfunctional leadership after <laughs> 35 years of Jeez, man. It's a great franchise. Let me tell you, we went to Super Bowls all the time. And then, uh, and then we didn't for yeah. 30 plus years. So it's been rough. Uh, so 
I'm diehard. You know, I'm, I'm still a big fan of the Redskins and um, and uh, obviously the the Washington Nationals and the Caps and the Wizards a little bit. I'm not a huge basketball fan, but I'm a big baseball fan now. And uh, I went to a World Series game last year with the Nats. Took my son, who's one, he's one, he just turned one. So his first baseball game was a World Series game. And it was pretty awesome. Dressed him like a baby shark. That was kind of the theme <laughs> for the Nats last year. So it was cool, man. Growing up in the D.C., Virginia area is interesting. Um, I remember going to kindergarten. And for whatever reason, it's interesting. You kind of talk about what does your dad do, you know, when you're in kindergarten. Yeah. And most of the kids in my class were like, my dad's in the military. And then they were like, oh, my dad's a lieutenant. My dad's a colonel. My dad's a whatever. Uh, yeah, I didn't know what that was about, so I went home and asked my dad. I said, are you in the military? And he was like, no, I used to be, but now I work for the government. And I said, what does that mean? And he said, I, I work with computers. And I said, what does that mean? And he didn't, he didn't tell me. <laughs> and so he, he worked at the Pentagon most of my life and then for Army Material Command as a, as a contractor, you know. And uh, that's what my dad did. My mother worked for Delta Airlines. And I uh, grew up in Northern Virginia, yeah. played sports all growing up. You know, my parents wanted me to, to be busy after school. So it was just going to one practice or the next kind of growing up. And uh, I became really athletic and, you know, really good at sports. And in high school, I was captain of the football team, captain of the lacrosse team, you know, track and field, played a little basketball. Um, and uh, I thought I was going to go – play big time division one football. I was like, man, I'm going to play. I'm going to go be a linebacker at Florida state university. That's my destiny. You know, that's what I was going to do. That that one just hurt me being from Florida and being a Florida Gator. I got to tell you that one just hurt me really bad that you really wanted to go to Florida state that bad. I didn't know anything about anything, man. Florida state, they were the good team when I was growing up. Oh you know? yeah. 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 The Seminoles and the hurricanes were pretty good too in those days. Yeah. Uh, but Florida, I mean, I guess they were pretty good, but, you know, in those days when I was growing up, it wasn't it wasn't as big. Well, Steve Spurrier uh, was there in '95, though. God, you know what? I guess you're right. Werfel was getting pretty good. Yeah, around that time, it was yep. Danny Werfel era. Won the national championship in '96. Come on, Jason. No, but listen, I was I was already, <laughs> you know, I was already in college in '96. I'm That's talking true. about like '92. 93 yeah yeah and that was you know the charlie ward era you know what i mean like, right right you know the the seminoles man uh the tomahawk chop sorry to offend you <laughs> no worries. <laughs> <laughs> i don't mean to offend anyone i'm just telling you what my experiences were so man i uh florida state coaches came to my high school i had good stats our team was good my junior year and and they're just like, oh man, this kid is six foot tall. He's 190 pounds, man. He's not gonna play linebacker for us. You know what I mean? Like we're looking for bigger guys. And so I was like, what do I gotta do? You know. So I started living in the weight room, trying to get bigger and stronger. And and it just seemed like um, the schools that were really aggressive uh, were the Division One AA schools and the smaller colleges. At the time, for me, it was like Virginia Tech to walk on, or I could go to Maryland or University of Richmond or Air Force Academy or Naval Academy or West Point. And the West Point recruiter, he was really aggressive. I mean, he called me all the time. He came over to my house and had dinner. 
he was hyping me up to my parents. He was telling me about how amazing West Point is. And so I went on a visit there and uh, I, I hated it. It was a terrible visit. Um, did not enjoy my experience at all. And, uh, and the recruiter was still pretty aggressive after me. And, and one thing led to the next. And he was just like, listen, Jason, we're going to need an answer. You know, we're coming up on our, our, uh, our cutoff date. You know, are you going to come to West Point or not? And he was at my house when he said this and my parents were there and I just kind of felt pressured a little bit. I felt a little bit. I felt it was the right answer, right thing to do. And I said, yeah, I'll commit. I'll go to West Point. And so uh, I decided to go and uh, I was very patriotic, you know, growing up in the Washington, D.C. area, you, you kind of internalized patriotism and, you know, the Reagan era and everything. And you know, you loved your country. You loved the flag. You you were around the military a lot. It was very common to you. It was very normal. You know, we knew all about the Army Navy game. It was a big event. You know, in our area, and um, I was excited to go to West Point. I I figured that I was going to focus on football, learn some things about the military, and then once my uh, um, my time in college was over, once football was over, I'd kind of focus my attention on on the military mm -hmm. and so when i went to west point it was kind of the opposite it was kind of like if you focused any of your attention at all on football and anyone that wasn't playing football noticed that then you were sort of ostracized you know like you're a piece of shit for <laughs> being a football player you should be focusing on military and i was just like man you know, like, what the heck? This is the opposite of college, of high school where, you know, you played sports and you were kind of revered, you know? You were kind of yeah looked up to. And it was the opposite at West Point. It was kind of like, if you played sports, then you were a shit bag. And he's like, man, what did I get myself into? So that's kind of how, <laughs> how it started for me. Uh, so what was it that you ended up getting your, your uh, degree in? So I started off with mechanical engineering and... Uh, at West Point, you have a sort of like a minor. We call it a track, mm -hmm. and um, everybody has an engineering track, essentially. So uh, after my sophomore year, so I was a mechanical engineering major, and after my sophomore year at West Point, I left to serve a religious mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to St. Petersburg, Russia. And that's something I've always wanted to do. So ever since I was a kid, I prepared to do it. So I left, and I went to Russia, and I was there for two years. And uh, it was interesting because growing up in, in the Washington, D.C. area, you know, uh, you had two enemies. One, the Dallas Cowboys, and two, the Russians. <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, that's hilarious. I hate those two entities, you know, and I ended up going to Russia, and I loved it. It was awesome. And when I went there, I learned how to speak Russian fluently eventually. And uh, I went back to West Point and I started taking my engineering courses again. And I was like, you know what? What am I doing? I, I just want to graduate. I'm going to change my major to Russian. And so I changed my major to Russian. And I, and I went from being one of the worst students to the, one of the best students, probably the best. Wow. And I won the, uh, the General Lefke Award for Excellence in Foreign Languages when I, when I uh, graduated from, 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 the, from West Point. That's crazy. So did you, when you, let's fast forward for just a bit and then we'll go back. But when you went through your SF training and stuff, did you still have to go to the language school or did they accept what you already had accomplished? So a great question. And so, uh, <laughs> 
I was told that if you have a 3-3 on the DLPT, which is the, uh, the language um, test that you have to take every year, and you score from like a, a zero to a zero plus, one, one plus two, two plus, and three, and three is the highest, I was told if you score a three on your reading and a three on your listening, you wouldn't have to go to language training in the special forces. And so I was assigned Russian and I took the test and I got a three, three. And then they told me to go report to class. And so I was like, all right. So I had to do five months of language training with, with, uh, other green berets in, in the course, you know, and our instructors, some of them were, were actually Russian. They were Russian women, you hmm. know, they were married to servicemen. Yeah. And, uh, we took like very basic Russian and I remember there were tests in the class where the teacher would ask the question in Russian and we would have to write down A, B, C, or D, you know, on our test. And I remember guys, you know, were taking this oral exam and the teacher would ask a question then everybody would just kind of look at me and I'd be like, A, C, you know, and then I'd just tell them what to write down. And everyone would kind of look at me and just like write down what I told them to write down. And the teacher knew what I was doing and she was like, okay, we need to find somewhere else for you. So she put me in another classroom and brought in a bunch of Russian movies and just said, just sit here and watch Russian movies all day. So that's what I did in the Q Get course. Get out of I, here. That's crazy. I watched Russian movies all day long. <laughs> I have never heard of that. But it makes sense. I mean, you already, like I said, had gotten to that point and had been that far along. So it was just kind of crazy that they had you do that. So let's go back. Um, tell me a little bit about your experience within Russia, though. What was it that you found that was so amazing about that particular trip? You know, I, I was 19 years old. I had never lived outside the country in my life. I was forced into an environment where I was fending for myself on my own, uh, having to learn a foreign language, and then essentially going around the streets, knocking doors, talking, forcing myself to talk to people, and selling a product, essentially, and that was proselytizing and basically selling the gospel, the, the teachings of our church, and, and so forth. And it was uh, just an unbelievable experience, just a learning experience. I grew up so much. Um, whether or not I succeeded or failed, it was completely on my shoulders. Your success was based on the number of people. It basically, was this. So your success was directly related to how hard you wanted to work, You know, how many people you wanted to talk to, how well you spoke the language. It all went back to how hard did you want to work. Nobody else was pushing me. Nobody else was forcing me to do anything. Nobody else was giving me tests. It was all about um, self-reliance, you know, and if I wasn't able to do this on my own, I wouldn't be successful. And, and frankly, I, I don't know if I was able to survive. You know, I was in an environment where I was seeing things you know, for the first time, like seeing how Russians lived in this country where they um, hadn't, they worked a job for years and years and years and they, they haven't received a paycheck for years and years and years, but they continued to go to work and they continued to, to fight. And even though they didn't get paid for their job, they still had to find a way to pay their rent and put food on the table. And they did, you know, and just like how determined and resourceful they are 
you know, that never quit attitude. They just figure it out and they just make it work. You know, um, just listening to other people's cultures, you know, just understanding other people's cultures and listening to how they describe things and, and their different perspectives. It was just an eye-opening experience and it really kind of shaped me into the person that I am. You know, I, I, I totally, totally, totally believe that. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, especially before you end up going through selection and those types of things, just having seen that, you know, resiliency right in front of you, those people who are overcoming so many, you know, major things as you're describing. I mean, here in America, there is no way somebody would be working for years without a paycheck. I mean, let alone no, I mean, maybe I mean, not maybe hours. But not even probably that, you know, <laughs> maybe minutes. <laughs> there would be a, a revolt within a day. I mean, you're, are you kidding me? Like, yeah, it would be like the, it would be insane. And the Russians were just like toughest people on this planet. Seriously, they, they just w- would do it and not complain and somehow figure a way to get the job done and yeah. just survive. Yeah. We talk a lot about, you know, situations that people on a daily basis are facing. They think it ha- they have it difficult. And, you know, you, normally you throw up something like, you know, well, yeah, you're having first world problems, you know. Uh, and truly, that's yeah. what we're talking about. Because there are people that are living in a lot of co- other countries that wish they had it as good as we do here in America. And I think at times, because we live here and we don't get a chance, some people don't get a chance to experience other cultures um, become more well-rounded and truly understand what other people go through on a daily basis, it's easy to take it for granted. And I'll, I'll get off my soapbox on being an American, but I mean, you know, let's let's go back then because after you graduated um, from West Point, I, I understand, I guess, that you went to Ranger School. Yeah, so went to Branch. Essentially, you, at West Point, when you're senior, you decide uh, what you want to do as far as your branch selection and and uh, gosh, you know, like most of the football players went field artillery. And so I was kind of thinking, okay, maybe I'll go field artillery. I, I got to hang out with some field artillery officers to get to know them. And I was like, yeah, these are good people. These are my people. Mm-hmm. Infantry officers at West Point, at least the ones who were up there at the time, all were very, very intense. They all had high and tight, high and tight so high that we called them pizza pocket <laughs> haircuts, right? <laughs> So you put like a little pizza pocket on, on the top of your head and that like your hair fit that pizza pocket. Yeah. I had that you same know? haircut. I actually used the straight razor, um, you know, in the shower every, you know, two nights or something like that to make sure that it stayed nice and shaved. <laughs> and it was, this is, this is pre 2000 era too. So, you know, back yeah. then the standard was those who wore the black beret and those who wore the black beret were the Ranger regiment. And that's exactly yeah. how they wore their hair. So everybody else wanted to emulate or follow I wouldn't say everybody. There are a lot of people that wanted to emulate and follow that to look very much like a Strack soldier. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of how it was. And and these guys weren't very social. They didn't really interact very well with other people. It was just like, can we talk about something else other than the military? And they like they, they, their brains like start smoking. <laughs> They're like, I have nothing else to talk about other than Ranger School or the military. And it's just uh, like, guys, like, well, you know. So I was thinking to myself, like, these aren't my people, you know, like, I'm not going to get along with these guys. I, you know, I, I need something more. So I went artillery. And then when I got into the regular army, I was like, oh man, the infantry guys are awesome. I mean, they're totally my people. Like we get along, we hang out. Like these are good people. Like what we're up with the guys at West Point. Like those guys were weirdos. You know what I mean? Like, it's kinda, <laughs> 
It was almost like the infantry thought, let's just kick these weirdos to West Point and we'll keep the cool guys here, you know, is, is kind of the, the uh, feeling that I got. And so, uh, well, not to say that all of them were weirdos at West Point. I'm yeah, joking yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. somewhat. But, um, and so I was in the artillery and pretty quickly um, into the officer basic course, we had a, an artillery ranger that came and talked to us and he was like, listen, you know, the Rangers, Ranger School is considering not letting any more field artillery officers come to Ranger School because there's such a terrible graduation rate for these guys. You know, like we just do so poorly at Ranger wow. School. And uh, and they were like, we, we were going to double our efforts and we're going to train this next class and we're going to be super hard on everybody. And, you know, if, if you want to become a Ranger – you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to, we're going to show up tomorrow morning at the PT field at 4am, you know, and, and we're going to get after it. And we got out of this meeting. It was like at the end of the day. And I was like, yeah, no, thanks. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not interested <laughs> in that. I'm going to, I'm going to go to my platoon. I'm going to start having fun. Like, I, you know, ranger school. Nah, I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. And my, my buddy, Andy, he was uh, a football player with me at West Point. He came out of that same meeting with a different feeling. He was all fired up and excited and ready to go. And he was like, man, I can't wait for tomorrow. I'm going to be a ranger, man. I'm going to go to ranger school. I'm like, what? I'm like, you're going to ranger school, man? You're going to PT formation at 4 a.m. tomorrow? He's like, hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. And I was like, well, hell. Like, if you're going to go, I got to go too. So can't let you go. And I can't, you know. So I went to PT that morning. And there was a hundred other FA OBC students there. That one of them was named Andy Reese. So no my way. Out there. Yeah. yeah. He no showed you. What happened? He no showed me, man. He no showed me. And so I was just like, are you kidding? So two and a half hours of just smoke session, right? That morning. And then knowing that, hey, I'm not a quitter. I'm not just going to quit. So I got five more months of this. And I go to Andy's door at, his, at the barracks and I knock on, bang on his door and he shows up in his boxers with his shirt off, you know, like, you know, Sandman in his eyes. And he's like, oh, bro, I'm sorry. 4 a.m. was just too early, man. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> and I was like, dude, I just got smoked for two and a half hours. He's like, oh, yeah, man. All right. All right. And he just shut the door. And I was just like, dude, what did I get myself into? So I, I finished pre-ranger training at OBC. And uh, I finished with 12 guys finished of the 100 plus guys that showed up on day one. And then of those 12 guys that uh, nine guys went to Ranger school, three guys, for whatever reason, at the last minute said they didn't want to go. And then of those nine guys, three graduated. Wow. So I, was, I was one of the three to graduate from Ranger school. So they were right about the challenges then of people coming from artillery, obviously. Yeah, it was interesting. It wasn't as though they were harder on the artillery guys at Ranger School, or they were, they were uh, they had some sort of vendetta against the, the artillery guys. It was just that the the guys that were there just quit. They, you know, six, different six mindset. Six yeah, nine just quit. Wow. It's so funny that you say that too, Jason, because there's um, so many episodes that we've talked in the past and some of the co-hosts are Rangers and such as well. And, you know, we, we get asked questions from people who are considering joining the military or going to RASP or going to Ranger school. And they're asking the question, like, what's some of the advice that you can give us? And it's like always, number one, never quit. Never quit. That's the biggest thing. 
That's it. I mean, that's the secret to ranger school. You're going to give me one piece of advice? That's it. Don't quit. If you don't quit, you're not going to fail. Now, you know, there's there's a breaking point for all of us. I went true blue all the way through. I graduated in like 61 days, and I, and I was lucky. I'm not saying I was the greatest, you know, ranger school or tactician or anything like that. I was just lucky. I just worked my ass off and and, and just grinded. But when I was there, you know, you could see based on the numbers that you have on your helmet, you know, there were guys that were at ranger school for like seven, eight, nine months. Yes. They just like kept getting recycled. Start back at the beginning. Okay. You go through, got the Florida phase. You failed twice. Back to the beginning, back to Derby phase. And I always looked up to those guys. I was like, damn, I mean, being in ranger school for nine months, I mean, give this guy you know, prom- promote immediately. You know what I mean? Like give this guy a holiday, do something yeah, yeah. for this guy. Cause he's, <laughs> Cheeseburger, he's yeah. just showing you that he's not going to quit. He might not be the smartest guy, you know, granted failing, you know, for nine months, but at the same time, it's like, man, this guy will never quit. And that's what you look for. Yeah. And, you know, and uh, we, we talked about the females going through ranger school and everything. And, and I won't get into what people believe or whatever the case, but you just pointed out right there how many people actually do get recycled. And as long as you're willing to go back and in some cases go back to day one and you're willing to stick with it and keep doing it, there'll be opportunities made available to you unless you're just, you know, basically not someone that they want to keep there, you know, but for the most part, if you're, if you're trying, if you get a little injured or something, or, you know, you fail in a, something that they'll allow you to get recycled on. Um, usually there's opportunities that are available to you and, you know, wow. Like you said, you find somebody that went through and spent six, seven, eight, nine months in ranger school. God bless them. I mean, they probably went in at about 180, 200 pounds and came out with like 114. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah man you're right like i lost 28 pounds and i thought man that's pretty tough i was talking to my buddy nick palmashano the other day the guy from ranger up and he was like i lost 52 pounds i was like oh my gosh <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. you know like forget about it yeah yeah no doubt uh so you graduated that in 2002 i did so i started january first or january probably january 6th or something like that whatever it was and then we finished uh just before april of 20 2002 so that's yeah. kind of when i went through. so when you got done yeah. with ranger school what happened next i immediately went to airborne school uh so i went to ranger school as a leg which if you have a choice i highly recommend going as a leg yeah. it's awesome <laughs> you know like you don't have the chance to get as hurt you know as hurt as, as much um well back in the day you too know, you know i'm talking like even in the 90s and stuff and um early 90s when they used to have all what four phases you know we had the desert phase okay. so many guys would get injured you know as airborne qualified going into the desert phase usually you're tired and everything already but the the, the leg guys you know they're, they're going to get a golf identifier at the end of that thing instead of a victor but they got to ride the bus. And so it yeah. was much different and, you know, less chances for injury, um, you know, turning an ankle, whatever the case may be, you know, you're tired, you're, you're exhausted. You haven't been fed. You're weak. You've lost all this, all this weight. And now you're supposed to jump out of an airplane and not get injured. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just sitting on the airfield, you know, like sitting on the airfield with like 10 other guys just watched everybody jump. And it's just like, this is awesome, man. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, no doubt. So what, I, I guess uh, sometime between you leaving Ranger School and you going to Airborne School, though, you had to suck down at least three or four cheeseburgers in order to get your strength back. Oh, my gosh, man. Like when I – you know what was interesting? Like they gave us these horrible little um, pastries called – I think they're called Uncrustables or Crustables. They're basically peanut butter and jelly sandwiches that are frozen. Little <laughs> – kind of pizza pocket looking things. And I, remember I know what you're talking Ranger about. School, yeah. You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. And so they gave them to us at Ranger school. And I remember they were like a delicacy. They were like, Oh my gosh. Like, you know, <laughs> you just like eat those. And I remember going to a restaurant, not a nice restaurant, but I remember going to a restaurant with a bunch of Rangers and we're like, Hey, do you guys have any peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? And they're like, we got these crustable things. And we're like, Oh, we'll take 10 of them. And we just like ate them. People were like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> And they were so good. But then, you know, after, you know, you kind of get your body right again, you're like, these are horrible. These yeah, are terrible. Right. Like, what am I, why did I ever think this was so good? So I got my weight back and went to airborne school. Tried to like, you guys just came out of ranger school. You guys are good. Don't worry. Just do what we tell you to do and we'll, we'll be fine. So, so we did that. And then I immediately went to Korea. And so my first duty station was in Korea. Uh, I was with first the 506 Kurahi. So, you know, like the band of brothers, you know, sort of thing. And I was right there on the DMZ. I was in a, in a city called Moonsan. And, uh, and I was at Camp Giant, which was a one company camp. So my company commander, my captain, my boss, he was the guy who ran the entire camp. And it was awesome, man. It was, it was the coolest experience for a brand new second lieutenant. Um, we got to go out to the field all the time and train. And we, when we were in the field, my buddies and I, we just go to the airport, the Seoul airport, and just pick a destination. We just look on the board, say, what flight is going out next? Okay, let's buy tickets to go there. Just go to just random places. Um, it, was, it was amazing. It was awesome. Yeah. And so you left there when? Uh, I left there in 2000. Three. So let me see. I guess around April or May 2003, and the war in Iraq kicked off, and I immediately reported to uh, 101st Airborne Division, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. I got there, didn't, you know, get an apartment or a house. You know, I pulled up in my car, parked in the parking lot, walked over to the airfield, and then flew to Iraq. Flew to Kuwait. And then joined my unit, which was in Iraq, on the initial invasion. And so I joined them on the initial invasion. And um, we went all the way up north, all the way up to kind of Mosul. And then they sent us to this place called Arabia, which is smack dab on the border of Syria. And so we, uh, we lived in a grain silo up there for about a year, up in Arabia. Yeah, crazy. You know, you're crazy. You think about the ground that we gained, the ground that we lost. Um, wow, crazy. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. Like the Iraqi army fought a little bit, then they, they kind of gave up pretty quickly. And then there was no insurgency to speak of um, up until the very end of that first deployment. There was, we were riding around in Humvees with our doors off. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it was, you know, there was nothing. You know, I was rebuilding infrastructure. I was hiring people to be policemen and Iraqi army um, replacements. And I opened up the free, the first free commerce train in Iraq. 
apparently. I was, at least I was on my resume and uh, built a train station and did things like that. But it was, a, it was definitely a different experience. So what made you all of a sudden decide then to go SF? Was it that during one of these deployments you had an opportunity to see SF in action on an ODA? Or what was it that all of a sudden had you, you know, go that direction? You know, I kind of felt like, number one, I, I spoke Russian fluently. And I felt like it would be interesting to go be on an ODA and I, I would be valuable with my language skills. You know, physically, I felt like I could hang with the guys, you know, um, shooting wise, I was okay, but I thought that I could get a lot better if I went SF and that's something I really need to work, work on. And then, uh, it just seemed like it was just a unique experience. And so it was in the back of my mind, like, this is something I should maybe do, but c could I do it? You know what I mean? Like, do I have the ability? Do I have the courage? You know, what if I fail? And another buddy of mine, Jesse from, from uh, West Point, West Point football player as well, he, uh, he was fired up to go special forces and he convinced me to join him. And I pulled, took, you know, uh, put my packet in to go SF and he put his packet in and I got selected and, and he didn't. And so I found myself going to, to Camp McCall at Fort Bragg, North Carolina on a bus with, you know, 60 other strangers thinking to myself, what did I get myself into? And then I went to the selection. So I was in a bus with 60 other guys or so, strangers. I went to selection. And it was, uh, I think it was about a three-week course at the time. And I was hooked, man. I loved it. It was speaking my language. It was awesome. And so uh, I enjoyed every second of selection. And I said to myself, oh, yeah, this, this lifestyle is for me. These are my people. This is awesome. I'm going to go. I'm going to go SF. I'm going to be a Green Beret. I can't remember if Mike Pritz, um, who is a co-host on this podcast, if he was, when you went through SFAS, um, if he was in um, somewhere within the queue, I can't remember what he exactly taught there, or if he was at that time frame when you arrived at 10th Special Forces Group, the CSM at 10th Special Forces Group. But does the name Mike Pritz ring a bell? It does. It does. It does ring a bell. I'm, I'm sure he was there at the time. It would be 2003, 2004 to 2006. I guess 2003 to 2006 is kind of what we're looking at yeah. there. Um, I wasn't intimately familiar with him. I don't think I, we ever met, but um, yeah, you know, his name does ring a bell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so after you finish, um, you know, with Q and everything, you donned the Green Beret, you decided to go to 10th Special Forces Group and begin serving there as a detachment commander. Um, what was your time like over in 10th Special Forces Group, and why was it that, you know, you ended up getting selected for that one? Was it because of its connection to Europe? Yeah, that's kind of how it went down. So I spoke Russian. 10th Special Forces Group, um, at the time, they were essentially, uh, their their area of operations was, was Europe. And so the, the guys at 10th Group spoke Russian and French and German and Polish and you know those languages and because I spoke a 3-3 in Russian I felt like it was a natural thing to go to 10th group and, and that's what they did for me got sent to 10th group um, and I immediately um, got assigned a team and my company commander said we're going to Iraq in a few in two months less than two months and he said, because your team didn't have an ODA commander, 
your team's going to stay in the rear mm. and you guys are going to do white, I think they were called at the time, white cycle taskings, mm. which meant that we were tasked to go do things. And, mm-hmm. uh, and one of the things they wanted us to do was go test experimental parachutes in Eloy, Arizona. Oh boy. So, so that was the first thing that I did when I got to my team. I, I immediately took the team over. We went to Eloy, Arizona. And we tested the ASRAPs, Advanced Static Line Ramified Air Parachute System. So we jumped 20 times or so over the course of two weeks in Arizona. And during that time, uh, my team kind of told me and and not so, <laughs> not so uh, specific words that they were pretty upset that we were not going to Iraq. So if I was worth anything as a commander, I would go to, to, to hire to our bosses and convince them to let us go to Iraq. And so, I mean, they were serious. They weren't like joking around like, oh, sir, do the best you can. It was like, sir, no, you're, you're going to do this. You're going to convince them that we're going to Iraq because we're not going to stay back in the rear. And so I was like, okay. And I talked to my company commander and he was like, no way. And I was like, well, sir, do you mind if I, you know, talk to the, the battalion commander? There's, a, there's an open door policy. And he kind of looked at me and he was like, go right ahead, captain. And so I uh, put together a proposal and I went to talk to the battalion commander and I convinced him to let me and my team go to Iraq. And oh, that's great. <laughs> it was awesome. But he was like, I have nowhere to send you. You know, where do you want to go? And I said, well, sir, uh, we, we looked at this spot right here. And because there was no coalition forces presence in a, present there in over two and a half years, we think that there could be, you know, there could be something going on here. Yeah. He's like, okay, all right, well, we'll send you there. You're going to have to find a spot to live. And, uh, you know, congratulations, young buck, you know, go tell your team you're going to Iraq. So I told my team, they were fired up. I told my com- company commander, he was not fired up. And, uh, <laughs> He was he was so disappointed that he <laughs> he assigned me to another company. So I was no longer with Alpha Company. I was with Charlie Company now, in their area of operation under their you know jurisdiction. So uh, that's kind of how it started going to Iraq the second time for me. Wow, wow, wow. Well, you earned some instant uh, respect and everything with your guys. I mean, no doubt about it. You had uh, you had earned some points. I wish I could say that. However, <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm validated. I'm one of the guys now. No, not so much. I, there's still, a, it was a lot of proving to go. You know what I mean? Oh, At yeah. least on my team. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff. So uh, I'm going to fast forward a bit because, you know, you spent some time in 10 Special Forces Group, but then. You know, at some point you got an itch to go back to school, and I'm sure it had a lot to do with just progressing through the ranks. So in 2013, you ended up graduating from Brigham Young with an MBA. Yeah, yeah. So the the military at the time they had a, a they had some issues with retention, and so um, they gave our year group an option. I, I think it was, I want to say it was a twenty thousand dollar bonus, or you could pick your next duty station, or you could go get your master's somewhere. And once you get promoted to major, as a young major, they basically say, get lost for two years, go do something, because we don't want to rate you alongside the more senior majors who we have to give the high scores to, and it'll look bad for you guys. So uh, I went 
to Brigham Young University. I went to get my master's. I went and got my MBA. And uh, it was a tremendous experience. I uh, loved every second of it. And while I was there, they gave students an opportunity to start their own businesses and kind of compete uh, in, a, in a kind of a new venture challenge sort of thing. And mm-hmm. Like an incubator. And I took advantage of that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's awesome. And so I guess it was there that you really started getting an itch for the business side. And I I'm, I would imagine being in the classroom, because for me, I went and got my MBA while I was still on active duty. And it was very challenging to go at nights and weekends and have breaks and everything else. And, you know, you being able to do it full time, I'm sure it was great. But sitting in the classroom um, alongside students that are coming from so many different industries and hearing their perspectives on what it is that we're being taught, whether it was a marketing class, you know, managerial finance, whatever the case, you know, was, you know, communications, it was really interesting them bringing those world stories into that space rather than hearing some military story and trying to apply a business degree towards that. Yeah, it was an eye-opening experience for me, for sure. There's a lot that... I didn't even know about. Like I remember um, having to select uh, a, a specific track, essentially, and it was like marketing or mm-hmm. operations or finance, and and I was like, I, I don't know. Like I'll, I'll do finance. That sounds interesting. And and my teacher, the first day, he, he selected me, called me out. He's like, Well, Jason, why finance? Why are you doing finance? It's <laughs> just like. Good question. Like, yeah. I want to make money, you know. Like, what do you want? What do you want me to say to that? And uh, and our instructors were phenomenal. We didn't have too many military guys there, so um, I was looked at as, you know, either people were terrified of me, you know what I mean? Like for yeah. no reason other than I, I looked tough, or you know, they thought I was a military crazy or something, or or they revered me without even knowing me. So it was kind of an interesting experience. Uh, I, I loved it, it was a great experience for me. And um, to learn about the business world and to see, you know what, there's so many similarities with the military, um, you know, like the operations order. It's mm-hmm. very similar to a business model or a business plan, you know, looking at it from that perspective. And then, you know, a lot of times my instructors would want me to tell them about my experiences in the military and, and how it could potentially translate or relate to the business world. And, and they were all very curious and interested about that specifically as it pertains to leadership. Like how do you lead? How do you inspire? How do you build a team? How do you build a culture? And, um, like I said, it was awesome. I recommend anyone in the military to, you know, I don't know if you, I'd go to a straight, you know, 100% liberal, college you know that might be a little tough for you especially your instructors might be uh, you know against you but uh but brigham young was a great experience yeah so how long after 2013 was it that you separated so i went back to fort bragg north carolina and i was working at usific uh united states special forces command and i was in the three shop and i was getting ready to go um to, uh, I forget what that course is called, Fort Leavenworth for whatever school I had to go to. And while I was there at Fort Bragg, um, my first week on the job, I had three tonic-clonic seizures at work. Oh, wow. So epilepsy, essentially. And and it kind of stemmed from uh, a a tough J-set, a Joint Combined Exchange Training Mission to Mali, Africa, my team and I were in Mali. It was my last mission. 
I was with the team for two years as a commander at that point, and I was uh, on the verge of getting replaced. My time was up, and that was my last mission that that Jay said to Molly. And um, while we were there, I got really sick. Um, we were out in the in the in the woods in the boons, you know, in in the desert, sort of with the with the Indich. I mean, tribesmen wearing spear, you know, wearing loincloths and chucking spears, and and the. Uh, the foreign internal defense force we were working with is the echelon tactique enter army. And they were, uh, you know, they were a pretty good unit. I was pretty impressed with what they were, um, their training, what they were able to accomplish. Uh, but I got sick and, um, Africa is full of crazy diseases, you know, like mm-hmm. the team that was there before us, two guys got spinal meningitis, you know, there's parasites, there's all sorts of crazy stuff. And, and I went down one night just real sick and my, my medic on the team, my 18 Delta is really worried about me. He's like, Hey man, you like, I want to be cautious. You know, like I want to send you back to the embassy to have someone take a look at you. And so uh, I was delirious. I was throwing up and the whole thing. And just, it was really weird. Went back to the embassy. I felt fine and went back to the team. We only had a few more days in country. And then, um, when we got back to the States, the day I got back, I had a, a seizure you know, never had one before in my life, no family history of it. And, uh, I just fall flat on my face, shake, bite my tongue, you know, lose, lose my memory. I have no idea where I am, what's going on. And I'd been fighting that for, um, for about four years at that time until I got to, uh, Fort Bragg. And, um, and then I had three of them right on my desk at work. And my boss was like, what's going on with you, man? You know, and he's like, you can't deploy, you can't shoot a gun, you can't this, you can't that. Hell, you can't even drive into work. You know, what are we going to do with you? And so I started going to um, uh, experts, subject matter experts at uh, University of North Carolina, Duke University, and so forth, and talking to the top neurologists. And and finally, after two years there at Fort Bragg, they were like, we're just going to medically retire you. And, uh, and that's what they did. So um, in late 2015, they, they retired me. What was it like uh, being medically retired? And, of course, it wasn't in your, your plan and having to make that transition out then. It was scary. Yeah. Um, it was frustrating. You know, it was frustrating because I wanted to go 20, and it felt like I was uh, running in formation in a PT race that was going pretty fast, and I fell out. And I never wanted to be a fallout. You know, I wanted to finish to the end. And I, you know, I prided myself on never falling out, you know, sort of thing. And it just kind of felt like, you know, I, I went 15 years, nearly 15 years, and I fell out. Um, at the same time, I was like, are they, you know, what's going to happen to me? Are they going to give me a retirement? Are they going to screw me over? Because military sort of has that reputation of kind of screwing you over. Ask myself the same question that, that each of us ask ourselves when we get out of the military. It's it's like now what? What am I going to do with myself? You know, and um, you know, and I, I was uh, I was in a spot where I could look at it as a very negative thing or a very positive thing, and I chose to look at it in a in a positive light in a positive way, and I said I can completely rediscover myself. I can do something interesting i can create i can be my own boss i can make money for myself i can be self-reliant and i I looked around at 
what my friends were doing and a lot of them were starting their own businesses. And I remembered something my mom used to tell me when I was younger. She said, uh, show me your friends and I'll show you your future, mm. you know? And, um, and I thought, well, you know, I could get a job, but I don't want to just jump right back into something. What if I started a business? And what if I started a business, you know, doing leadership training and team building and, and things that I know and I'm passionate about. And that's what I did. So I sort of started this in college and I had some success in college as sort of a side project, a side hustle, sort of just something that the MBA program afforded me. And then when I got out, I had to make a choice. Do I do this full time or do I do something else? And I decided to pursue it full time. And, and here we are. So, you know, so many guys come off active duty and they don't have much of a plan, and especially if they get out on a medical like you did, and they end up kind of losing their way. Or you have individuals that get off active duty and um, they their plan basically is to go do the same thing that they were doing on active duty, but doing it in a government contract. So, you know, you had these different crossroads or a period of your life where you had to make some really tough decisions about what it is that you were going to do. And I what I applaud you about that I think where most people become very successful at making the transition is when they look internally and, and realize these are the things that I'm most passionate about. These are the things I either can't do anymore or I don't find any joy out of. And you separate those two things and try to work towards the positives, like you said, to, to hone in on what, what are those experiences and what are those things that I can bring to the table to add value to the marketplace, to create a company, to go work for somebody else. It's all the same thing, right? It's all about that mindset. It really is. Like, you think sometimes, like, what if I lost everything? What if I took everything in my bank account, sold everything that I had, and just had to rely on myself to succeed again? Could I do it? That's what really is sticky. That's what really matters. Your ability, no matter what, to have confidence in yourself to get the job done. You know, and that's what I've always been after. Like focusing internally on the skills that I need to develop so that I could serve other people and I could add value to other people's lives. That's what has really driven me to, to want to be successful. You know, and it still mirrors everything that you were doing, you know, on active duty. I mean, you were a leader. You were trying to make an impact on the men that you actually were leading, but you also were helping train indigenous forces. You were making an impact within a community, within a different area and trying to train them. I mean, you're just transferring all these skills base. But one of the things that you mentioned that really stood out to me is the statement that your mother uh, made. And again, we've talked about many times about you are your circle of five, you know, so basically if you look at the five people around you that you associate the most with, and um, if they're successful, great, then you're probably going to learn and gain from that. But if you have, you know, don't have a really good group of five people that can challenge you, motivate you and um, challenge you in different ways and stuff, then you're not really going to grow. So the statement that your mom made about show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Wow. Powerful. Yes. Yeah, a great statement. And that's something that she she told me when I was young and stuck with me throughout my entire life. It's, it's like, you know, if five of your friends are millionaires, you're going to be the six. You know what I mean? If yeah. five of your friends are professional athletes, you're going to be the six. It just happens that whatever, whoever you surround yourself with, you know, that's who you become. Yeah. 
Yeah, totally believe that. So now you're the executive director of Warrior Rising as well as the CEO of Mission Six Zero. So I want to give you an opportunity to talk about both of those. Um, so first, we'll start with you being the executive director of Warrior Rising, the nonprofit. Tell us a little bit more about that. The Warrior Rising, very proud of it. It's a 501c3 veteran service organization, and we help veterans in the most altruistic way we know how. We help veterans help themselves. We empower them to create, accelerate businesses. And so I give them that tough love and say, guys, you know, your success or failure is completely on your shoulders. Whether or not you're willing to work is the amount of money and success that you're going to have as a business owner. And we give them that tough love up front and say, listen, this may or may not be a good idea. You know, you have to be receptive to this information. You have to be willing to listen. You have to be able to have tough skin. And we want you to understand how incredibly difficult it is to start a business. Now, are you, do you have that temperament? Do you have that mindset? Do you, are you the type of person that would do well at business? Most guys are not. Most guys would just rather get a job, and that's fine. Most, some guys would rather uh, join a startup. That's fine. But then there's that few that say, you know, I have an idea, I have a vision, this is my vision, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to accomplish and create this business. Those are the guys that, that succeed. You know, those are the guys that we get really excited about. And so uh, we started Warrior Rising based off of the success of Mission Six Zero, and I wanted to give back. You know, I wanted to continue to serve. I wanted to help guys. And that, that's what it's intended for. That's why we created it. You know, we, uh, we help veterans like this. We, we have them sign up or contact us. We do an intake call with them, you know, about 30 minutes or so. We listen to them. It's a personal call, a very intimate call. Then we give them admission into our Warrior Academy. It's a 40-video curriculum. Talks through a business model in terms of a military operations order. And then we assign the veteran a mentor after they go through the Warrior Academy, after they've proven themselves. And the mentor and the veteran create a go-to-market strategy together. And then we give the veteran a grant, a loan opportunity, or an investment opportunity. And then we have them join our community, our tribe. Uh, we have platoons, cha essentially chapters. We call them platoons all over the country. And they can go and join, and we have guest speakers, we have free lunches, we have workshops, business workshops, sometimes we'll go shoot at the range. We just want veterans to feel that they're part of a team and a community, again, that cares for them. And so that's what Warrior Rising is, and that's what we do. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's an incredible thing that you you have put out there and stuff for anybody who's actually looking to going down this pipeline. So I definitely encourage people to get in contact with you, and if they want to do that, how could they go about doing that? So you can find um, anything about Warrior Rising at warriorrising.org, or you can follow us online, Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn. You know, uh, my personal LinkedIn, just Jason Van Camp. Uh, I do a lot of posting uh, on, on LinkedIn, not so much on other platforms, social media platforms, but mainly on LinkedIn. And then uh, my company, Warrior Rising, they, they post on all the platforms. So Mission 6-0 is where this came out of. So how what was Mission 6-0? And I'm assuming that's really what you started at uh, Brigham Young and then you know decided to go ahead and kick off and stuff a little bit more. What is Mission 6-0? So, yeah, so that's what I started at Brigham Young. You're correct. It's a leadership development company. And I started this... Um, 
really focused on bringing some of the best leaders I've ever met in my military career together on a team. Uh, some of my former commanders, some of my peers, some of my subordinates, and that kind of morphed into uh, people that I've met along my journey, other Green Berets and Navy SEALs and Medal of Honor recipients and Rangers and Marines and wounded veterans, just guys that are really impactful. They made a difference in my life in, in one one way or the other. And we would do keynote presentations and uh, we would do team building events. And we were really lucky because our first clients were NFL football teams, you know. And during the course of training these teams in leadership, uh, we realized that we could do so much more if we were to bring scientists to the team, PhDs, researchers, experts, and, uh, and those type of individuals that could translate our experiences into relatable and digestible action items, take the scientific theoretical approach to, um, to leadership and, uh, and really show the client what they can do both personally and professionally to implement some of these themes and experiences that we're discussing. Yeah. And so that's the secret sauce at mission six zero. It's soft meets science is sort of the secret sauce there. And uh, ever since COVID hit, you know, business has been tough because our stuff is all in person. And so we've transitioned to online training now. And we have a workshop, uh, a 12-week masterclass that we offer. It'll be, um, it'll launch by the end of this week. So probably by June 25th. And uh, you can find that um, on deliberatediscomfort.com or you can go to mission60.com and and learn more about the masterclass. Man, I could talk to you for hours and, and I definitely want to have you back because I know that you believe in servant leadership. You know, you study the history of the Roman empire. There's a lot of good stuff that we can talk about there in terms of leadership and, and uh, you know, getting, getting into depth as far as the history and maybe how it relates a lot to what's going on today. Yes. And so um, definitely going to have to have you back on so that we can go down that path. Oh, I would love it. Seriously. Thanks for having me on. It's been a blast. This is a really fun, fun time. I had a, had a really enjoyable time.